good morning to those <coughs> near and far. Uh, this is uh, this is the first time that I've tried to speak to a non-audience, and at the same time have an audience. <laughs> uh, I want to say first of all that I, I really am not that fond of uh, the gym as a place of worship, but I am very grateful this morning. This is the warmest place I've been in and since 8 o'clock yesterday morning, except for Ben's basement office. Uh, this morning I want to uh, look at Christ's mission for the church as Christ stated it in Matthew 28 at the end of the chapter. And I want to say right in the beginning that I don't know if this is a sign of old age or what, but I'm a little confused about whether I have, I know I have said some of these things before um, to chapel and Bethel people, and I, I preached this sermon at Floyd last year sometime, but I could not find any record of preaching the sermon at Chapel of Bethel, and uh, it was in some notes for a sermon I, I preached either at Chapel of Bethel, but as Mary Sue told me on the way home from that sermon, you know, it, that sermon was twice too long and you really didn't cover the last part. Well, the last part was these notes, so... Um, I guess what I'm saying is you might hear some of the same things you've heard before, but I don't think uh, they were in this format. Uh, after we look at Matthew 28, Christ's mission for the church, I want to look briefly at Acts 2 and Acts 4, which I think is the earliest uh, example we have of of believers attempting to carry out the mission of the church as expressed by Christ. Uh, I would have to admit, I'm still in my introduction, I'd have to admit that, that after uh, 50 years of preaching, um, and I guess it's okay if I say this. I was ordained here about 50 years ago today on Valentine's Day, the 14th of February. And it's hard to believe 50 years have gone by. Uh, but I, would, I want to say that, admit that when I was ordained 50 years ago, I had absolutely no idea what the mission of the church was. And I don't know why... I don't know why they ordained me in light of the fact I didn't know what the church was about. And, and I honestly hardly knew what the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, and maybe none of us did when we, when we decided to accept Christ as our Savior and follow Christ as our Lord. Maybe, maybe most of us don't really understand. But... Now, I'll have to admit that that's true, but I also would admit that, that after uh, 50 years of um, involvement in church leadership and parent church leadership, that uh, by now I, I feel like what, what I see more I, I think I understand better what the mission of Christ is for the church, but I think I see more too the challenges to to understanding and and implementing implementing whatever it is that we believe the mission of the church should be. And I have sat in meetings where there was I would say fairly high level conversations about. 
vision statements for church, vision statements for organization, mission statements, and and I'm not going to attempt to distinguish, but the, trying to figure out the difference between a vision statement and a mission statement, and then the application of that for a framework uh, for the organization of church in which you actually carry out the mission. I've been in a lot of meetings like that, and and I, what I would say now is that this is an extremely daunting task. And and yet, for I think every believer, they they do need to have um, an understanding of these things that that uh, invigorates them, that captures their imagination, and um, is dynamic something dynamic in their life that they live out of and into this understanding of who is Christ and what's his mission for the church. So it, it seems like a very important issue, but when you try to put it into words and try to develop a framework in the church, it's, it's quite challenging. And I would say this too, that in all of those discussions I've had over the years, and I was I was the head pastor of the church where we had those kind of discussions. I um, I felt like, wow, this this is an amazing thing that I'm the pastor of this church, and I don't know how to help us get where it is that I think the Bible says we ought to be. I just could hardly believe that that it was that hard, and that and that it that I wasn't doing a better job at this task of leading these people to get there. So I'm not um, I'm not talking this morning out of any critical spirit. Uh, I believe we're guilty sometimes when it comes to the mission of the church and the task of the church of um, trying to think about what is the mission of the church and what's the framework and the task of the church. I think sometimes what we're guilty of, first of all, is trying to think about it just by reasoning about it. We just try to think and try to gather our thoughts together about what it might look like if it was this or that. Like, uh, like we're having a business meeting for a business. And, and I know that we have to think about these things and use our minds, and we have to reason about them, but I think one of the difficulties can be if we try to reason about it and we aren't really reasoning based on Scripture. So we have this verse in 1 Corinthians 3.11, uh, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the question is, what was Jesus' mission? and task for the church, for his church. So Matthew 28, 18 to 20 reads like this. I believe it's a mission of the church kind of statement. And there are three missions here. And it reads, And Jesus came and spoke to them, to the disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And in these three verses, I believe we have three missions, and they are, first, go and make disciples, or go and teach. Second, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And three, teach them to observe all the things I commanded you. And then prior to these three mission statements, and after prior and after, there are 
um, two reasons why we should do these three. And the first one is uh, Jesus has all authority in heaven on an, and on earth, which precedes the three mission statements. And then following is the second one, Jesus is with us until the end of the age. So we're going to look at these three missions and the two reasons. So the first, <clears throat> the first mission is go and make disciples or go and teach. And the idea there is is, we, is that we make disciples as we go. And every, every believer is going. It doesn't matter where, where they are. If they are at home, most of the time, as some are, or whether they are on a job, or what their activity is, we are all going where we are. And as we go, as we are where we are, the call is to make disciples. And so the question is, how do you do that, and are we doing it? And in a preliminary way, I think, I think what we can say is, I think maybe this was uh, St. Francis. He said something like, um, Make disciples, the way you make disciples, you make disciples as you go, and if you need to, go ahead and talk. Which I, I think highlights that we make disciples by who we are. And everything that we do and say comes out of who we are. And that, that's the most basic place we start when we think about making disciples. Are you a disciple? And out of that, you make disciples. So the gospel of Jesus Christ makes disciples of all nations, all ethnic groups. And the church of Jesus Christ is composed of people of all nations. Now, I, I know that this local church probably isn't composed of disciples of all nations. Uh, so I believe that one, the mission of the church in making disciples is um, to remember that we're talking about, first of all, in a broad scope of of Jesus Christ's church being composed of disciples from all nations of the earth, and not just us. And which calls us to recognize, I believe, as disciples, all those who are disciples, all those who trust Jesus as Savior and follow Jesus as Lord, which I believe is the most basic definition of a disciple. So all disciples of all nations, by definition, trust Jesus as Savior, follow Jesus as Lord, and they belong to Jesus. All disciples belong to Jesus, and they belong to what I'll call Abraham and Abraham's family of faith whether Jew or Gentile, whatever. And all these people belong to each other. So I want to make a few comments about this. Uh, John 17, I believe, contains the most pointed statement by Jesus in his prayer about, about the all people of all nations belonging to him and to each other and to the Father. Uh, this is in John 17, 20 and 21, where he said, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. 
I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. So that's that Christ statement, his prayer. And then uh, Romans 7, I'm sorry, Romans 4, 7 to 12, we have these verses about about Abraham's faith being counted to him as righteousness. And it says, this happened before he was circumcised so that he might be the father of all who believe as he did without being circumcised, talking of Gentiles, speaking of Gentiles, that righteousness might be credited to them and then immediately following that verse, uh, there's a statement that 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 Abraham is the father of everybody who believes, both Jew and Gentile, and this makes everybody who believes in Christ a spiritual descendant of Abraham, and it means that everybody belongs to the same family. It's the family of God. And I believe this is an important issue in disciple-making. So what is the basis for a person becoming a disciple of Jesus and being recognized as a member of the family of God? And, and I know there are a lot of issues here, and I also know that I don't know the answer to all these issues. Uh, but I believe we do need to start with what we know is a basic Bible teaching. And the basic biblical teaching is that a person becomes a disciple by trusting Jesus as Savior and Lord. And each person who trusts Jesus as Savior and Lord becomes a spiritual descendant of Abraham and then makes Abraham their spiritual father. And it makes them a member of God's worldwide, worldwide kingdom. And this does not require becoming an ethnic Jew or Mennonite or Baptist and doing certain cultural things like um, being able to uh, cook certain kinds of meals or canned food or so or whatever. I'm just saying that it's easy for us to think to think about who who's qualified on the basis of cultural things, and I'm not I'm not saying that these things are sin. I'm just saying they're not the most basic criteria for who belongs, um, who is a disciple, who has become a disciple. Now, I also feel like I need to say at the same time, that I believe it is valid for a local congregation to be unique in their time and place in history and in their understanding of what it means to follow Jesus as Lord. Times change. I mean, in our day, you have this issue of the Internet and cell phones and the pornography, and it's just really challenging. And there's there's a time and place that we live in, and it requires an understanding of what the gospel is and an application of it. And I think that's valid. Um, at the same time, I think I think it's appropriate to think about this, this major question um, that I think every believer in church has to answer, and that is how. How does a believer or church be unique in their place and time and stand for what they believe is true and and uh, in their time and place and not de-Christianize other people who are also attempting to stand in their time and place and be uh, followers of Jesus, the Savior and Lord? It's, it's just a tremendous challenge here. So going on, a disciple 
not only belongs to Jesus and um, Abraham and other believers, but a disciple is an apprentice. That's the meaning of the word. An apprentice, a learner. Uh, the idea is that this person is an adherent, a follower, someone who is learning from a teacher, someone, uh, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, is someone who, in a very basic sense, is learning to do the things that Jesus says to do, whatever that is. The things, maybe another way to say, he's learning to do the things that Jesus would do if Jesus would be living, living his life. And of course, if you stop and think about it, that's really what the Bible says Jesus is doing. He's living our life, not instead of us, but with us, in us, by the Spirit. And so, we are living the life of Jesus. This, this is the biblical understanding of being a disciple. Now, I mentioned several times that disciple trusts in Jesus as Savior and follows Jesus as Lord, and I want to say a little bit about that. Uh, we're making disciples, and what are they? What does this mean? So, uh, first of all, and I think at a very basic level, most people, all people who claim to be disciples know this is true. Uh, the first thing it means is that we're born again. And the idea of born again means it is born from above. Is the Greek idea of the Greek text. Born from above by the Spirit, according to John 3, the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus. And Jesus presented it there, the born from above, as a supernatural activity of God by the Spirit. It's regeneration. And it is something that a person cannot do inside themselves for themselves, and no one else can do it for them. But in their surrender to Jesus, God works this miracle of regeneration in their hearts. So it's from above, not of earth. This person, uh, Jesus, is Savior and following Jesus as Lord. It's not only about being born again, but it's about uh, what Jesus referred to as denying self or surrendering of self. And so, uh, to trust Jesus and have our sins forgiven, that's not the only thing that being a disciple means. It means that we, uh, well, Jesus said in Matthew 16, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whosoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So this is talking about surrendering of one's person to Jesus, giving up on control of my life, giving up on uh, maintaining my life, maybe you would say, apart from Jesus. Just do it myself. Let my life work on my own. And it involves surrendering one's sins and trusting Jesus for forgiveness. It involves surrendering my desires and aspirations to Christ. Surrendering, surrendering of self is not self-salvation. Um, it's not killing myself, myself. It's giving Jesus freedom to work and giving up on running my own life and being in control of it. So the difference between uh, trying to run one's own life and trying to be in control of everything in order to be safe and safe 
and letting Jesus be Lord. That is, letting Him uh, when Jesus is Lord, we are being responsible. We're doing it by cooperating with Jesus, by surrendering to Him and making wise choices because Jesus is Lord. Uh, surrendering one's life to Jesus is not giving up and, and falling into a helpless heap. It, it is discerning what the Lord wants and cooperating with Jesus in doing it. That's surrender. It's letting go of being one's own God or Master or Lord. And it's doing whatever one knows Jesus wants done. And that can be very hard, but it's an intention to do it and trusting in Jesus and receiving strength and power from Him is to surrender. And then um, an example of, of someone who did not do that would be Mark 10, the rich young ruler who had uh, much earthly goods, and Jesus told him that he would need to surrender that and go sell and give to the poor, and he could not do that. He could not let go of that. So one one um, clarification I would make here in this surrender issue is that it does not require perfection. We don't have to we don't have to surrender perfectly in order to be a disciple of the Lord. And I think that's. Um, you know, we can get in our mind, and maybe this is worse for, for those of us who want, the more you want to follow Jesus in a faithful way, maybe the easier it is to get into perfectionist mode and to think that if I can't get this perfect, it has no value at all. Well, the problem here is that uh, no one can perfect the surrender. No one can perfect any part of their salvation. But we enter into it and we cooperate with God in it as we can. Uh, being a disciple is also uh, about being conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. And um, we have many verses about this, about becoming a mature adult, about Second uh, Corinthians 3.18 talks about uh, with unveiled faith beholding as, as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and being transformed from one state of glory to another by the Spirit of the Lord. And this is really talking about worshiping God and in our worship time uh, experiencing the presence of the Lord and the work of the Holy Spirit and being changed in our person and becoming more like Christ. So, verses that talk about putting off the old man and putting on the new, they're talking about the same idea, being changed uh, from, from uh, one state of behavior to another. And... Uh, Verses, many verses in the New Testament that talk about the role of believers, both ordained and non-ordained, work, uh, speaking to one another, uh, truth and love in Ephesians 4, many, many verses that talk about this being transformed and uh, talk about, these verses talk about it as a lifelong process. So this is what it means to be a, a disciple and go and make disciples involved in this process of, of helping one another surrender to Jesus as Savior and Lord and growing in surrender and growing in being transformed into the image of Christ. So, so one, one mission of the church is, is this commitment to making disciples and not only to getting people to say that Jesus is my Savior or even that Jesus is my Lord, but helping people actually experience a transformation 
in their person and becoming different people in the way they live their life. That's a mission. There's the second mission in, in Matthew 28. It says, Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this may sound a little strange, but uh, the word baptize there is the word immerse. So if you, if you take it that way, it's saying immerse people in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I don't believe it is talking primarily about water baptism. I think the Bible talks about water baptism, and uh, many places say things like um, believe and be baptized, repent and be baptized, and they are connected. The two are connected in the New Testament, but I don't believe this verse is talking about water baptism. It's it's talking about bringing people into a deep experience of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, immerse them in the presence of God. Immerse them in the power of God. Immerse them in the instruction. So, I want to say a few things about what this might mean. Uh, I believe as a congregation, it means that we we congregate to worship God. You're going to immerse people in God. You congregate to worship God. And you congregate to listen to God's Word and to fellowship in the Spirit and to talk with each other about who is God and who is Jesus and what does that mean for me in my life to talk with each other about about how I'm living life with God or without God. Uh, to talk with one another about the fact that I was so mad yesterday and I totally forgot that I belonged to Jesus Christ and all I wanted to do was throw things and have a fit. Okay. I'm, I'm just saying that it, it's easy uh, you want to think that I'm following Jesus, but I don't ever talk about how hard it is to do that, and I'm not really real about it. So it's also, we immerse ourselves in God together when we congregate uh, to listen to God's Word and to talk about life and, and how God is working, what He's doing, what He wants to do. But, but somehow it's not happening for me right now, if that's the case. To make confession together, to repent together, to acknowledge areas of failure, areas of need, areas of growth. I feel like I've been growing in these ways. <clears throat> uh, maybe it's gathering to eat together. Of course, COVID is about ruining that. I'm not being critical. I'm just saying these some of these things are very hard to do because of circumstances, and these circumstances uh, can make uh, can make these Bible commands hard to put into practice. They, they really can. Or or to have a family, I mean, a, a congregational camp together, which I think allows. Uh, allow some things to happen in a different setting that can be helpful. So to immerse oneself in God and the congregation means that each one of us is immersed in Jesus ourselves and in our personal lives and, and that we are also immersed in corporate life. So to extend this idea of what I was talking about uh, to be together in this way as a congregation, I think it, I think it requires that people are able to be together without pretense, without pretending, without the pressure to perform in order to look good. 
Uh, one thing I've learned over the years is how distressing it is to people to feel like they have to perform. It doesn't matter in church or with their friends or who, and act like their life is a certain way when it really isn't. That, that is very distressing to people that they realize I'm not the kind of person I appear to be, but I don't know how to talk about it. So, to immerse in God's presence is to invite people to come to God and each other without performance, with whatever needs redemption. And I, I don't mean to come together in whatever way we are, and, that, and, and we, we're not going to be honest because we don't want anybody telling us anything. Um, by this, I mean not having to act like something is redeemed and fixed when it isn't. And this requires honesty. It requires humility. Uh, it, it requires that people care for each other when uh, when people admit that things are not okay. And and it requires that that uh, you don't demand perfection of people when they're not there yet. Well, none of us are perfect, but. Uh, it requires giving grace and mercy to people for where they are right now, even if we're trying to help them move to a different place. Uh, so we're we're allowing and inviting people to be honest in their needs so that there can be growth. To immerse in God's presence includes cooperating with God, seeking to understand how God is working and present in each person. Sometimes people realize, I think God wants to work in this area of my life. I'm seeking to understand how to cooperate with God and what He's doing in my life and in the lives of others. And this, this, is, this is about immersing ourselves in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together in a corporate way. To immerse in God's presence would require giving up on thinking we have everything figured out. And I don't mean by that that we don't have anything figured out and we don't understand anything. I just mean uh, it can be a tendency to think that the only way we can be together is if we all act like we know exactly how everything is or should be. Um, so we have to give up on the notion that that we know the one right way, the one right answer, the one solution that fits everybody. And and uh, so when someone confesses a need, we give them the one answer that we know will work. But we haven't actually heard what they said about their problem yet. I've done that already. Because I prayed yesterday with somebody about something similar, and it was helpful, so I just go down that line. Uh, so this one right way, I think, can can kill can kill uh, can kill the life and energy of a congregation. the one-right-way mentality. It can kill any freedom that people might feel to be honest. Um, it, it can make it hard for people to express themselves in public. It make it hard for them to express their need or to, to uh, make a statement about what the what God is doing in their life because they're afraid He won't measure up to the one right way. Uh, it kills the freedom to hear God speak through others by the Holy Spirit in public or private conversations, especially if I'm the one that needs to listen, but I've already made up my mind about what is the only thing that can be okay for somebody to say. And sometimes that we can feel that way. So, an openness to God to, to change, to 
change us and to change our thinking and whatever it is that He wants to do. So immersing ourselves in God together requires humility, honesty. Uh, the third mission here, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, um, <clears throat> is the idea of a range of opportunities for people to experience inner transformation and outer obedience. Now, <clears throat> it's easy to be this um, observe all I've commanded you. I'm thinking that that most believers, when they hear that statement, they immediately think about uh, the most prominent things that their denomination or local church views as um, things you need to obey. And it's very easy to get focused on on one, two, three external things that identify us as being who we are. And I'm not saying that those one, two, three things are bad things. I'm just saying that if we get overly focused on external expressions of obedience, we can forget that there are many other areas of obedience that Christ is wanting to speak to us about things that are less obvious to people, things that are harder to measure, but things that are just as important and actually are internal and they are the things that that we will need to obey before the Lord, before the outer expressions can uh, be what they ought to be. So, this change requires scripture and truth. Whatever change uh, God is calling us to, that should be the result of corporate worship instruction, it requires scripture and it requires truth. And people cannot learn to obey apart from learning what is true, what it is God wants. And I, I think it's easy to forget we need the truth here. We do. We need the truth. We need the truth in love, but we need the truth. Change requires, obedience requires more than a strong will. And I think I said this to you people before, but it's one of my great concerns that um, people will not experience inner transformation and external obedience, nor can they help others experience these unless they give up on the notion that people can simply choose to believe or feel or act differently than they are and then they can do it. All they have to do is decide to do it, then they can do it. Okay. The fact is, no, you cannot feel, believe, act different if you don't choose to. That is a fact. You have to want to. But it isn't true that the only thing that it requires for change is just to decide to change. There's some other things that are involved in change. And, and they involve things like learning to think a different way, learning what God wants you to do when you feel a certain way, learning what to do when you do feel that way, I'm learning that um, you have to cooperate with God and you can't just muscle up and do it yourself. There, there are these factors that, that we have to understand and, it, and it's not just, I decide to do it and then I can do it and I'm going to do it and I've written things and do it. I don't know if I'm being understood or not, but it's more than a strong will. It's a will that moves us to surrender, moves us to cooperate with God. And this involves the uh, surrender of our thoughts, desires, feelings, attitudes, our commitments, and so on. And, and also then, this learning to obey uh, requires private worship. We talk about daily devotions, personal devotions. 
And for many people, this is a very hard thing to do. It's, it's actually, uh, people don't do this unless it's a habit, and habits are developed, and it's hard to develop. And it's not only, obedience is not only rooted in, in uh, private worship, but also in public worship. And uh, this is the primary place where we are immersed in the Word and presence of God. Now, these two, these two, the one before and the one after, I'm heading for the end here. Uh, it said the one before in Matthew 28 is that the reason to do these three things is we make disciples out of the authority of Jesus. It says all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And so go in my power. Go, the idea of authority. Jesus has authority. He has all authority, and we, we are going under his banner. We are going in his strength. We are going in his leadership. In, in the work of the Spirit. We're not, this is not something that we do by ourselves. So, Jesus has authority as a teacher, authority over the devil, authority over evil spirits, authority over all spiritual powers. I mean, you just, we, you know, like we need to stop and think about what authority does he have and over what. And we, we are working under Jesus. Because we're not under task by ourselves. And then the one afterward, uh, he, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the idea there, there is that we, we are working in cahoots uh, with, <laughs> sorry, that's this term, uh, cooperation with, we, we are, we are in tandem with Jesus. He is with us. We are not alone. So it's His authority and power, uh, and it's and it's His presence. It's rooted in His death and resurrection. So He He bore to the cross everything that's opposed to the kingdom of God and everything that's wrong with us and everybody else that we're trying to make disciples of through through bearing our sins through uh, bearing our afflictions. Um, and and risen from the dead and can raise us from the dead and everybody that we are uh, making disciples of. And I, I keep saying making disciples and it bothers me because we don't make disciples. Strictly speaking, it's not what we do. It's what Jesus does in them that makes them a disciple. Now, I want to look at it just uh, in Acts 2 and Acts 4 and I won't take time to read it. Um, I think what we see in that example in Acts 2 and 4 is immediately after Pentecost, the early church, where there's, what, 3,000 people added to the church in one day as a result of Pentecost. And so there were many Jews and converts to Judaism in Jerusalem at that time, and they all heard... Uh, the preaching in their own language. They were from various places and heard it in their own language. And they wanted to know what in the world is going on here. This is a miracle. What is happening? And and Peter explained that this is fulfillment of the promise in Job. And then Peter preached and then the people responded, what must we do to be saved? And he said, repent and be baptized and be saved from this, um, I think the King James says, untoward generation, perverse generation. And those who gladly received his word were baptized, continued steadfast, I'm paraphrasing, they continued steadfastly, attentively, feeding the apostles' teaching, 
They shared everything with each other. They ate together. They prayed together. They stayed together. And they shared everything together, including selling their property and sharing the proceeds with those in need, shared a common purpose, spent time together every day in the temple area, ate together in their homes, were happy to share their food, and they ate with joyful hearts. And I mean, uh, the picture there is of a very dynamic group of people. I mean, I'm pausing here. I'm, I'm trying to think how to summarize all that. Like, were they being that way just because it was so fresh and new and they were so carried away by whatever was going on? I mean, it's almost like we have a hard time entering into whatever that was. It's like we're so far away from it. What? what? I'm sorry. What ailed them? What was wrong with them? I mean, what was right with them? What, what was going on for them that they were so enthused and dynamic? And, and maybe we would say, well, they were just beautiful to hold a spear. That doesn't sound quite right. Right answer. I mean, unless all of us want to say we aren't filled with the Holy Spirit, and I don't think that's true. So, we, I guess we need more conversation. We're out of time here. What, what, what is it that that produces a group of people who are so dynamic about what Jesus has done for them, and they're, and they're so alive when they're together? And they're so in love with each other. Now, they did have their problems. We do know they had their problems. <clears throat> Again, I'm out of time here and I can't talk about their problems, but they had problems, challenges. But here, here is the reality of it the, the, the uh, mission of Jesus as stated by Jesus, is an invigorating vision and mission for the church. And and I believe the early church experienced it and lived in it and lived with, with each other in it. So, um, I'm not quite sure, as I started out, I said in the beginning that I'm not sure how I mean, as a pastor of a church, uh, I felt sometimes like I didn't know how to, how to... If I hadn't been the pastor of the church, I'd have probably felt critical of the pastor. <laughs> okay. Leon is something over here. Yeah. But then when you're the pastor, it's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get it there. I don't know what our issue is. So... Uh, maybe my plea would be that we together commit ourselves to this kind of vision and mission and work together to understand it and to uh, live in it, whatever that involves. So the Lord bless